we pick it up in verse 1 of chapter 18, where the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. According to the doings of the land of Egypt, where you dwelt, you shall not do. And according to the doings of the land of Canaan, where I'm bringing you, you shall not do, nor shall you walk in their ordinances, or like literally their standards. You shall observe my judgments and keep my ordinances to walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, which, if a man does, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. So three times he says in this passage, I am the Lord. He's reminding them of his relationship with them as the Lord, Yahweh. And bear in mind with Israel that when God revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush to initiate all this, these things in action, when Moses would go to Egypt with his brother and deliver them, God gave a progressive revelation of himself. And Yahweh is the new name in progressive revelation that's more intimate than uh, El Shaddai that he had as he revealed himself to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the patriarchs. So even too, through faith in Jesus Christ, we have a progressive revelation in the fullest revelation like Jesus said, you search the scriptures and then you think you have life, but they are that which speak of me. We have the full revelation of Jesus Christ tonight here as his church in Orange County on August 22nd, 2020. But they did have a progressive one. So when he says, I am the Lord, he's using his name that is a further insight and more intimate than the name that he used when he revealed himself to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am the Lord, your God. I am the Lord, your God. I am the Lord. So three times he says, I am the Lord. And twice he says, your God. That's the distinction. You see, they are a people of covenant. The Ammonites, the Egyptians, the various Canaanite tribes, the Jebusites, and so on and so forth. The lands they'd go through, the Edomites, the Moabites. They are not the people of the Lord Yahweh. I am the Lord your God. He is not their God. They have many false gods like Baal, who would um, be the god of war and ruthlessness, or Molech, the god that they'd offer their unwanted infants with emphasis on the altar to. They worshiped different gods. They had different standards. In fact, they had no standards. And in many cases of their pagan worship, they did things that reflected the sinful nature all born with, without restraint, without any restraint, and so even the list, just to read through this list on Tuesday night, the rest of this chapter, just makes you feel sick. It's a sickening chapter, but it's a necessary chapter. Because there are people that live like that chapter right now on this planet, the rest of this chapter. But the church is not to be those people. I am the Lord, your God. I am the Lord, your God. I am the Lord. And that principle of being set apart in a relationship with God as his people, personally, for a household, and in this case for a nation, which is unique, because obviously he didn't make a covenant with any other nation after this. It's for all nations, the gospel, the good news. It's a relationship, and it's personal, and it's distinct and different than the world. As Jesus said, enter by the narrow gate that leads to life, for wide and broad is a path that leads to destruction. And so Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one because the Father, but through him. And Jesus is the standard. And like the bumper sticker has said for about the last 10 years, not of this world, is the standard of following Jesus. Jesus didn't come to make churchgoers or a community. 
He died on the cross and was bloodied and beaten beyond recognition to birth us in the second birth through faith in him as our personal Lord and Savior, to unify us in a common faith in who he is with the apostles' doctrine, the breaking of bread, fellowship, and the unity of the faith. That's why when Paul was led by the Holy Spirit to write Ephesians, he said, there's one mind of Christ. There's one faith, one baptism. Christ is not divided, and Christ is not confused. So where there's division, that can be the Lord dividing light from darkness, where darkness claims to be the Lord, and it's not. That's a necessary division. The Bible talks about that. But there's always going to be unity of the faith. The mind of Christ is not divided. It's important to understand that. So as we see here, your God, your God, I am the Lord, your God, I am the Lord, your God, I am the Lord. We think about this. Tonight as we gather, we're not a community. We're not a club and we're not a political party. That is absolutely certain. We are the church, the living organism on earth of what Christ birthed through his death, burial, and resurrection, his ascension to heaven, and sending the Holy Spirit from the right hand of the Father. It is to your advantage that I go away, and when I go away, I send the helper, and he will come to you, and he will guide you in all truths and give you discernment and understanding. He will lead you, the Paracletos, the Holy Spirit. And when we receive Christ, we're born of the Spirit. So there's a unity of the Spirit. And we have this commonality through faith in Jesus Christ. He is the preeminent one in his church. He's Lord of the church. And the Father loves the Son, has given all things to the Son. So Yahweh, the Lord your God, Yahweh, the Lord your God, Yahweh, the Lord, he has given all things to his Son, Yeshua, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And Yeshua is over this church locally. He's over the church universally. And whether he's welcoming the church or not, because remember, the last church in Revelation, he stands at the door and knocks, and if anyone come, opens, he'll come into him. That's Jesus locked out of the church. That's the gospel locked out of the church. That's the word of God locked out of the church to the church of Laodicea. That's the lukewarm church. He's knocking to get in. But he is Lord of the church. Right now, tonight, everyone who's born again in this place, we are unified and yoked with every other person on this planet, regardless of tongue, tribe, or nation, that is also born again. The blood of Christ covers us. We are indwelt by the Spirit through faith in Jesus Christ. And that crosses denominational lines, it crosses language barriers, and it unifies us. And the mind of Christ is not divided. Now, we have this relationship personally, if we've made that decision. We might have this relationship in a marriage. We would want this relationship influenced in the raising of our children, if we have younger children. But this is what unifies us, is Jesus is the Lord our God. And again, we're not rallying around sinful men and women who come and go. We're rallying around Christ who came once and died once, and his death is sufficient for all of us. And isn't that a beautiful thing? Because we're singing these songs with Danny in worship, and they are the songs of eternity. What we're doing here is beautiful in the eyes of the Lord. It's a beautiful thing. It's a, a pleasant thing and a joyful thing to him. We're blessed. And he's pleased with us as his people. And we're gathered by the blood that he has shed through faith in who he is. And hopefully with obedience to be willing to become who we're meant to be as we yield our lives to him. As our Lord, and in this text, from the context for Israel, but thinking for followers of Christ... He starts with, after he says, I am the Lord your God, according to the doings of the land of Egypt, 
and the land of Canaan where you're going, you shall not do. This is really important. So often in the New Testament, God starts with what we are not to get us to what we are. Put off the old man, put on the new man. Put away and put on. And however it is with human nature, we often respond better to the positive by understanding what the negative is. More often than not, that's the case. And so here, the Lord starts with this reality. You will not do as the Egyptians did. Now, they were in Egypt for 400 years, and as a group of 70, they became a nation of over a million. And for four centuries, they went from having favor to disfavor and becoming slaves and oppressed and subject, subjugated to a people that lorded over them and controlled them and killed their male offsprings and threw them in the river. A people who worshiped many false gods where even their leader, Pharaoh, was God. But they followed El Shaddai, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so when they left, they took the bones of Joseph because Joseph said, surely God will visit you, fulfill his word. And when he does, take my bones with you. Don't leave me in this forsaken land and take me to the promised land. So they came from this land of idols and those 10 plagues were judgments on 10 different gods of the Egyptians and their worldview. God judged them. And if you read Romans chapter 1 about the things that are under the wrath of God, which ungodly men suppress in their ungodliness, uh, they suppress godliness in their ungodliness, and they're given over to depraved minds, depraved hearts, and they're just completely devoid of the sense, sense of existence and purpose that God has intended for humanity. That was the Egyptians. And when Pharaoh and his army was completely wiped out in the Red Sea after the, the people had promised these people had walked through it, passed through it, it was a total judgment by God in time, space, and matter upon them, their idolatry, their lifestyle, their oppression, and what they did to his people. And it's a complete judgment. Egypt never rode in, rose anywhere near to the zenith of power they had before Pharaoh and that events that happened around 1500 B.C., give or take 100 years. They were great before that. They'd never been great since. And even after that, through the prophets, God said Egypt would never rise again to be anything significant. And alas, they aren't. So Egypt was judged literally by God in time, space, and matter. Like Sodom and Gomorrah, like the global flood, they were judged by God. Their gods were judged. And Pharaoh wrestled against God. And God said, I raised him up for this purpose to show you how strong I am against these type of people. Now, in going to the Amorites, the land of Canaan, which is now modern Israel, where the Israeli nation exists to this day, 400 years before that happened, when God promised it to Abraham, he gave him the dream that his descendants, when he didn't even have one yet through Isaac, the son of promise, because Isaac, the son of promise, wasn't born yet, but he said, when he's born, a great nation will come from you, and they'll go far away into a far land. And, and it was a dark and terrible dream for Abraham. Abram at the time, his name, before he was Abraham. And God said, when they've done this, they'll come out of that land, they'll be a nation, they'll come back here, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. The Amorites was an all-encompassing term for all the different tribes that lived in Canaan at that time that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob dealt with as they grew up in the promised land that God had promised them. So off Jacob went in his cart with his family, and that was the end of them living in their promised land for three generations, and off he went to Egypt, where he died in Egypt, was buried in the Promised Land at the Cave of Machpelah with the family, with Leah and so forth. But four centuries is a long time. And after four centuries, that's the 1600s. 
That's a long time ago. After four centuries, God brought them out. And as they're going into the promised land, they're about 40 years out from being led by Joshua to conquer the land and to destroy the inhabitants of the land as a vessel of judgment upon people who are under God's judgment. God was going to judge them through his people. And he warned his people time and time again, if you do not destroy them, they will destroy you. It's, it's kind of like war, you know, and if you ever talk to people who have seen serious combat, something just happens when you're at war. But in the end, it's kill or be killed. And the Bible makes a distinction, by the way, between death in war and death not in war through Joab. Because God said about Joab that he shed the blood of war in the time of peace. And he drew a distinction of it. They're going to have to go in, these people right here, everyone under 20, because we know what it says in Numbers after this. And God is going to judge the Amorites. So Jericho is going to fall. Ai is going to fall. All these different places are going to fall. But they're not all going to fall. That's for the book of Joshua and Judges, how that plays out. But you know those that didn't fall, what did they do? They corrupted God's people. They stumbled God's people and came to pass what it says, bad companies corrupted by good morals. And time and time again in the book of Judges, they're judged for 40 years, 25 years, multiple years until they cry out of their sin. God raises up a judge who delivers them. And then they have deliverance, like with Gideon. And then they, he dies, they harden their hearts, and the typical things happen, and they fall back into idolatry, into the bondage of the actions and the behavior and the worship of false gods of the people they live with. So they're leaving this and going to that. And God says, you shall not be like an Egyptian. Your worldview is not an Egyptian worldview, and your worldview will not be a Canaanite worldview. Your worldview is my worldview. But to understand my worldview, you need to understand their worldview, that their worldview is not your worldview. How they live the rest of chapter 18, wicked, profane, vile, evil. That's not how you live. That's, that's not what this covenant at Sinai is all about. That's not what the second round of stone tablets is all about. That's not what the detailed law of civil law looks like. The, the feasts of the Lord, they're not about wickedness and profane and evil. They're about consecration, sanctification, set apart, communication, relationship. My people, I am the Lord, your God. And so the distinction is so crucial. Throughout human history, there's always a battle of distinction between faith and unbelief or faith and religion. Cain and Abel is distinction between faith and religion, blood and vegetables. Noah in the ark, the people perishing outside the ark, it's a distinction between light and darkness, truth and falsehood. This has always been the way of the human experience, the way of faith and the way of unbelief. And there's a lot of religion and unbelief, but the way of faith is always by faith and ultimately it's always by blood from Abel all the way to Christ on the cross to who we believe in right now this night through Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. There has to be distinction and what was is not what you're going to be and where you're going is not what's going to be, which Brings up a very key thought. This is never our home. Egypt wasn't their home, and the land of Canaan wasn't their home. For we're told, even in the book of Hebrews, that as Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Jacob, as they dwelt the patriarchs in the promised land, they looked for the city which had foundation, whose builder and maker is God. All the land was promised to him, but he looked for a city which had foundation, whose builder and maker is God. He's the father of faith. In fact, we're told in Hebrews that they 
consider themselves pilgrims and sojourners while in the land of promise. They weren't believing God for the land of Israel as we know it today. They're believing God for the new Jerusalem, the heavenly city. Much like the Chronicles of Narnia with C.S. Lewis, the, you know, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. There's seven books. And the last book is called The Last Battle. If you've ever read the books, they're just fantastic. But The Last Battle is so chaotic and so weird. And there's confusion over Aslan. It's so strange. It's kind of a frustrating book. But then in the end, it all comes together. We're in the last battle, the true Narnia is fighting and defending Narnia. And they, they essentially lose. But they wake up in the new Narnia, which is... Faster, deeper, stronger, farther. And it's multidimensional. And C.S. Lewis captured it. And if you've never read The Last Battle, it is really worth reading. Because you know exactly what C.S. Lewis was thinking about, about heaven. Because heaven is beyond our comprehension. And so it captured that it's not about this Narnia. It's about the next Narnia. And our home is in heaven. We are citizens of heaven. We are ambassadors of Christ, who is the Lord of heaven and earth. Our home is in heaven. And so we're going to always be a pilgrim and a stranger in Egypt. We're going to always be a pilgrim and a stranger with the Amorites. Their standards are never going to be our standards or never should be our standards. We're called to higher calling. It doesn't say of Amorites or Egyptians that they're joint heirs with Christ. It doesn't say that they're adopted in the family of God in Romans 8, by which we become joint heirs and we call them Abba Father. It doesn't say that of Egyptians and Canaanites. It says that of people redeemed by the blood of the Lamb from every tongue, tribe, and nation. Some of you have estates, you have a trust, you have a will, you have things like that. Family is generally who you have listed in your estate and your trust. And we're joint heirs with Christ. But part of receiving the inheritance is the journey that prepares us to receive it in eternity. And that's why we're told in Romans 8, we suffer as he suffered, therefore the inheritance takes on greater value. It's like the movie that came out about 15 years ago called The Gift, a very famous movie, where the kid receives the inheritance. He's a spoiled brat from a, a trustee family, if you will. And uh, James Gardner is the main actor, but he's dead. And he speaks from these videos. So if you've done this, now you'll do that. So he had all these things, life lessons he was trying to teach his son. And as he passed each test of the life lesson to understand the value of work, the value of people, the value of love, and these things, he could be entrusted with the millions and millions of dollars that was in the estate. But it was staggered, and he had to pass these things. So each time he passes one of the tests, he gets to watch the next video. If he ever didn't complete it all, he wouldn't be able to watch the next video. And so... Each time, James Garner would be like, well, son, if you're watching this, this means you learned the value of hard work, where he went to a ranch on Texas and he had to put the fence post in and everything, and each level. And so then at the end of the movie, when he finally receives all the inheritance, he receives millions of dollars and he realizes he wants to give it away and do things to benefit humanity with that money. In other words, as he was in the will, he would not receive the inheritance of the fullest portion or any of it, until he could be entrusted with it. And it was through the life lessons by which he learned to be entrusted with it. It is a great movie. It's called The Gift. Now, for us, it's not about what we get in Egypt or Canaan. It's about what God's teaching us as pilgrims and sojourners in Egypt, in Canaan, in the journey. And we are heirs with Christ, but our inheritance is in the next dimension. 
And it's interesting in Romans 8 where it says we're going to be joint heirs with Christ with what we learn through suffering, that that's why it says that if God is for us, who can be against us? All things work together for good, those who love God. And all day long we're like, led like sheep to the slaughter. But, you know, if God be for us, who can be against us? And I'm convinced that neither famine nor peril nor hunger nor nakedness can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. It's the, probably the absolute mountaintop of the entire Bible in the New Testament teachings is the back part of Romans chapter 8. But it's built upon the premise that we're adopted through faith, that we have a relationship with Abba Father, and that we suffer with Christ in the human experience, and then we become joint heirs with him to receive the full inheritance at the end of the journey in the new Narnia, if you're following my thought process here. So if you weren't happy at this job and you got persecuted, you're probably not going to be happy at this job and you're going to get persecuted. But you don't want to change who you are. You still want to go above and beyond if your neighbors didn't like you here because you're a Christian, these new neighbors not like you because you're a Christian. And it doesn't matter if you move from a very uh, liberal environment to a more conservative environment. You're still passing through. Canaan might look better than Egypt, but you're still a pilgrim. You're still a sojourner. In 1 Peter, when Peter started his epistle, he wrote, To the pilgrims of the dispersion. That's the first verse of 1 Peter. He addresses his recipients of the letter, the epistle, as pilgrims of the dispersion. And then he tells us, in contrast to wickedness, like chapter 18 of Leviticus, he says, conduct your sojourn here as pilgrims with reverence and sanctification. There's consistency here of what God was teaching them for what he has from the Old Testament and the Mosaic Covenant for Israel with us in the church. I am the Lord, your God, according to what the doings of the land of Egypt, where you dwell, that's, that's not you. It's never going to be you. They can be part of a club. They can be part of a church. They can be part of a religion. They can do all kinds of things. But if it's not Jesus and the mind of Christ, that's not you. Because Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He doesn't change his character or his working. He never will. That's not you. And where you're going, this new beginning, this new college, this new situation. You know, it's so funny because our son Luke went to OCC and got his AA there. And he, was, he had communist professors and all kinds of professors that attacked his faith. They wanted him on the debate club the first day he was in school. Then they realized he was conservative and they just didn't want him in the debate club. And then he debated that professor the entire semester. And he never got upset when people got upset with him. He defended uh, all people. He defended... He had the facts. You can never outfact Luke because he's a data. He's like a data processor. That's literally his master's degree is in that right now. But as the Lord closed doors for him to go to, it's amazing. He's a straight A student, but he didn't get into Long Beach State. He should have been. He didn't get into San Diego State. He should have. It's so weird. Like I mean, by law, he's entitled to go to those colleges as a straight A student coming out of junior college. We're like, okay, that's the Lord. So he went to Grand Canyon University, and guess what he had at Grand Canyon University? A communist professor openly communist professor. And what did he do there? He engaged him. All of, his, all of his people in the dorm, they all wanted to go drink on Saturday night, party, sleep around, and then go to the local churches on Sunday morning. Like Luke would just call it out. He had the rainbow flag across the bunk in the dorm, his roommate. And Luke just loved on him, did the best he could with everybody, but he made sure they understood if you confess Christ, this is inconsistent with the character of Christ. And there's a way it seems right to a man, but then there by his death. I can tell you he actually had more conflict for the gospel at a Christian college than he did at OCC. 
So how they were in, at OCC, you're not like that. And how these guys might be at GCU, you're not like that either. Now, GCU is a great college, don't get me wrong. 20,000 students, there's going to be good ones and bad ones, people that love the Lord, people that don't. We all know that. You can work at a Christian bookstore and have someone that hates God working next to you, right? I mean, you understand that, right? You could, you could be on staff at a big church and start to wonder if the people you're on staff with are born again. But they might wonder if you're born again. But God be true and every man a liar. But just know this. We don't do what they do in Egypt. And we don't do what they do in Canaan. And so in case you don't know what they do in Canaan, he gives them the rest of the chapter and another chapter, another chapter. We got another week of two more chapters of plowing this stuff. Jesus is saying, saying forever. We are pilgrims, we are sojourners. And it's that simple. And just because we change our external environment doesn't mean it's any easier or change any measure of morality in our life than it was in the previous place. We can never let the society dumb us down to the truth of the gospel and its power in our life and the power of the Holy Spirit to transform us because our journey is a pilgrimage to make us ready for eternity, not something really special at the end of time, which is nice if you live a ritual life, but it's not about being something really special at the end of time. It's about being something profoundly transformed to be ready for what's in eternity when we're joined heirs with Christ and we receive the estate of the kingdom. Now, we also see here, so we shall not be like Egypt or Canaan. But we also see absolute truth. Because God says, what you will do, verse 4, is you're going to observe my judgments. And you're going to keep my ordinances. And you're going to walk in them. I'm the Lord, your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments. There's a right and a wrong. God is not gray and ambiguous. God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. And there is no shadow of turning with the Father of lights. God isn't one way at the dawn of creation and a different way at the end of the age, the valley of Megiddo. He is the same through the entire journey. He does not change. Now, he gives progressive revelation. And he works in different ways, in different times, in different times past, to reveal himself to humanity but all the revealing is always moving toward Christ and everything looking back is toward Christ, what he's done and what he's going to do. We will walk in his judgments and his statutes. I've been serving the Lord 33 years and I've watched society profoundly change what they believe is truth and not truth. And many of you have walked this journey with me. You know, I always remember in the early 90s when the USA Today had the article of male flies chasing male flies and it was their argument that homosexuality is a natural thing, the gay lifestyle. They found two flies, male flies, chasing each other, and this is scientific proof that the animal kingdom is gay as well. I remember thinking, like, what madness and lunacy, like, two flies chase each other, and you use that to, to live a lifestyle that consistently, God says, is self-condemning before him. Well, you know... Within 15 years, I was at an event in Vista with a scientist who was doing a creation thing. And I said, what about, you know, the whole idea of animals like having a, a gay lifestyle or being, he goes, he goes it's ludicrous. They're, they're, they're designed to recreate is what animals do. They, you know, they, they make more animals. But, you know, like 10 years ago, you could read articles about how like 15% of all animals are, are gay. I'm telling you, 30 years ago, two male flies buzzing around was the argument that the animal kingdom is gay in USA Today. And now they'll tell you, these dolphins, these baboons, whatever. See, 
Romans 1 warns us, if you reject the truth, you'll believe a lie. And instead of serving the creator, you'll worship and serve the creatures. And we'll always justify ourselves in our sin. And that's why we need to let God be true and every man a liar. And that's why we need God's word to judge us instead of us trying to judge God's word. You will walk in my judgments. You will walk in my statutes. And he has not changed. Now, we looked at the dietary law, and we understand why he had the dietary law a certain way, and it's a different way in the New Testament. I once heard a very important person in our country, in our government, quote that as to saying why the Bible could never be reliable for any governmental influence. Because one time you can't eat pig, and then you can't eat pig. What ignorance. And doesn't it always scare you when a judge or a politician quotes the Bible out of context? I, I, I'm, for, I'm afraid for them, but I'm also afraid for me. Because I want to make sure I teach it properly in context. You know when a judge who doesn't walk with the Lord like quotes a Bible out of context and scolds someone about what a pastor should do or not do? Man, you're just storing up wrath for the day of judgment without humility and salvation. That, that's going to replay when the books are open, and that's a really bad look. Or politicians, well, you know, we could never look to the Bible to guide us and influence our society, separation of church and state, because, you know, at one time God said you can't eat pigs, and then said you could eat pigs. Like, that's... That's how people think who don't have the mind of Christ and don't rightly divide the word of truth and, and don't let God be true and every man a liar. They make God a liar. We don't ever want to do that, ever. We have a moral compass of God's word from Genesis to Revelation. We have the whole counsel of God. So when Paul was there figuring he's about to step into eternity, he said, I've not ceased to declare to you the whole counsel of God. I'm innocent of the blood of all men. See, there's a lot of people who are in clubs, and community and ministries who do not believe the Bible, but claim to know God and walk with God. And they store up wrath for themselves because they don't teach the whole counsel of God. They have doctrines of tickling ears. And the Bible tells us, the Spirit explicitly says in the last days, many, many will depart from the faith, giving heed to doctrines of demons and deceiving spirits. And Jesus tells us that the mark of the last days is deceit, 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 deceit. Let no one deceive you. Let no one deceive you. Let no one deceive you. The New Testament writings by the apostles, deceit, deceit, deceit. And what that deceit is really centered on is moving from truth to falsehood. And that's why we're told in 2 Thessalonians, the mark of the last days will be lawlessness because the Antichrist is the lawless one. And the way you move from being under law and being governed by God is rejecting his government and his word and his truth as absolutes. And you move toward lawlessness to live like the Egyptians or the Canaanites. And you move toward the lawless one. And God will allow them to follow the lawless one. He'll give them over to the spirit of delusion because they did not rejoice in the light of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. So it's really important that we never forget, I am the Lord, your God, is what God speaks to us. And that, that blood on the cross is absolute. That resurrection is absolute. The right hand of the Father is absolute. And he didn't do all this so we can be in willy-nilly Twinkie land understanding truth and falsehood, light and darkness, morally. But we can say like Paul, I know who I believed in. I'm persuaded he's able to keep that which I've committed to him until this, that day. The Father of light, there's no shadow of turning and we must hold the line. We must be true to his word. We must trust his word in all things pertaining to life. We shall walk in absolute truth. But there's one more thing he says. It's the very end. Which, if a man does, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. This is an interesting verse, and I didn't really touch on it Tuesday night for time purposes. But this verse, you might recognize it from the New Testament. This verse is actually quoted in the book of Galatians. 
where when the Holy Spirit's guiding Paul to say that we're saved by faith, not by works, he quotes this verse and says that no one has done the law is evident. So in other words, this verse, though, when it's quoted, the New Testament is quoted to show us that none of us has done this. None of us has lived by them. Even the book of James says to break one part of the law is to be guilty of breaking all the law, right? So we understand contextually the Ten Commandments isn't going to save us, and we understand being a good person isn't going to save us. For if we could save ourselves, then Christ died in vain. But that he did not die in vain is evident in that Christ died for us, Galatians tells us, as well as pretty much the whole encompassing New Testament. But yet, if a man does, or a woman does, they shall live by them. So we know that we're not going to save ourselves by obeying God's commandments and ordinances and statutes. That's not what we're talking about here, though. Because an obedient Israelite and an obedient Jew for 1,500 years was obedient to God's word. God said to Joshua, if you obey my word and don't depart from right to the left, you will prosper. So because we can't save ourselves by being the perfect human being, obeying God's word perfectly, doesn't mean we ignore his word or what it means to our lives practically by the power of the Holy Spirit living in us. And God really touched on this when he spoke through Jeremiah, when he said, when I make the new covenant, which he makes through Jesus Christ, I will no longer write my words on tablets of stone, but on their hearts. So what happens with us when we're born again is instead of a stone tablet that says, you know, you shall not lie, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, that kind of stuff. It's written on our hearts by the Holy Spirit, tablets of flesh. And it's living. And being saved by grace does not omit us from obeying the word of God. And even the Ten Commandments, nine are reaffirmed in the New Testament with the exception of the Sabbath, which was the sign of the covenant with the Jews uh, throughout their covenant under the Mosaic Covenant. But the nine are summarized in this, you shall love the Lord and you shall love your neighbor as yourself, which is coming up in the next chapter of Leviticus, the, the foundation of that text quoted in the New Testament. Love believes all things, hopes all things, bears all things. Love never fails, doesn't keep a record of wrong. So in loving truly with the power of the Holy Spirit, because how have we received the love of God? By the Holy Spirit who's been poured abroad in our hearts, Romans 5.5. 5. If we're loving with human love, like people try and do without Jesus, it's limited. But if the Holy Spirit's indwelling us and we're born again, the, the first fruit of the Spirit is love, and it's agape love, it's unconditional love. I had someone earlier this week tell me what real love looks like in a marriage, and I have to say it was quite insightful because there's a, a medical infirmity and illness affecting the marriage, and it's a, it's a very trying time. And they said, let me tell you, I used to think love looked like this. This is what love looks like now. And I was like, I, I, thank you for sharing that because that, that is a sacrificial agape love that you're talking about right here going on in your marriage right now with these physical infirmities. If a man does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. So as we think about this, we know that the obeying doesn't get us saved. But we don't obey the Lord because we're going to be saved. We obey the Lord because we've been saved. We're not hoping for salvation. We're coming from salvation. So that positional righteousness through faith in Jesus that justifies us moves us toward practical righteousness that proves positional righteousness as we grow and mature in our faith as we go through this journey, that there's growth. This is affirmed for us quite clearly in the book of James where we're told faith without, without works is dead. And it's not the works of the flesh. It's the works of faith. And it's interesting because there, when they're given examples of works of faith, do you remember what those works are? Abraham offering up Isaac. 
Now, Abraham believed God and was accounting him for righteousness, but when he offered up his son, that was his faith, his saving faith, proving itself through action that confirmed his faith. And though it didn't make any sense, he knew that he was going to come back from that mountain with his son. Remember what he said to his servants? The boy and I go yonder. We're coming back. We'll come back together. So even right there, when he had the dagger out for his son, he's like, I don't understand what's going on, Lord, but I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do what you've called me to do. And it says he did not withhold his son, his only son, which is a type of the father, not withholding his son for us. And then because he did this, because he did what his faith said and believed, we're told, remember what it says in James? He became what? The friend of God. His doing was a confirming and a proclamation of being God's friend. Our obedience reveals our faith and really the principle of confirmation of friendship. That's what we read. And Rahab is also in the same context of faith without works, of her faith working. She believed that God was God the Lord and she lived in Jericho as a prostitute. But when the spies, she hid the spies and she lied to cover up the spies and save their lives, risked her life amongst her people. It says that her faith was working by the risk she took to save them. So that's a working faith. And this is what we want to keep in mind as we're moving forward in 2020. Our faith needs to be a working faith. It needs to be a real faith. Now, the obvious obedient things, making good decisions, forgive that person. You don't need to say that, right? Or let that go or just, yeah, don't do that. You know, these types of things, when we obey the obvious of God's word, it needs to be a working faith. But sometimes our working faith requires taking big risk and it reveals our faith at work. And who knows what that looks like for, for each of us? Who knows what it looks like for us? I, I just don't know. I don't know what the future holds. But it says we shall live by them. And I leave you with this final thought about when we live by them. There is such good news for those who live by them. Because when we're the people of covenant and we're walking with the Lord and we're saved by faith and have positional righteousness, God is our provider. God is our protector. God is our defender. God is our God, and he'll never leave us nor forsake us. He holds the universe in his hands, billions of stars, billions of galaxies, and he knows the hairs on your head. He knows every detail, the deep things even of your own heart. And he, ne- he promises to never leave us nor forsake us, whatever we face. He is our peace as well as our protector and our provider. When you have the Lord as your Savior, like we do here, we don't need to fear the evil day. But if you cast off the Lord and say, we don't want him in our proclamations. We don't want him in our city government. We don't want him in our national government. We don't want him in our home. We don't want him in our heart. We don't want him in our lives or in our thoughts. Well, you know what? When the bad day comes, you're on your own. And you lose everything in one day. Listen, if you're going to lose everything in one day, make sure you lose it with Jesus. Because as Pastor Rob McCoy said recently, they can't take what you've already given. I was like, what? Let me say that again. Rob McCoy, who's now being fined. I mean, whether we agree with him or not, I don't know. He's just doing what he believes he's called to do. He's planted that flag on that hill. That's his hill. But he said, you know, they can't take what you've already given. If everything you are is the Lord's, everything, then no one can take it from you. 
The man, the woman who does my word shall live by them. I am the Lord. He's our whole life, not a portion of the life. He's our whole life. Obviously, we're not playing church here, and we're not playing club or community. We're church. We're sharing the journey. We're trying to figure this out. We're trying to start teaching our young people again before we lose them. We're doing the best we can, and, and we're going forward. But we must do with faith what God is calling us to do in our individual lives, whatever it is we believe he's called us to do. And we must do the best we can. It's a time where we find a deeper, a deeper place, a higher gear, and a clearer focus in the kingdom. I shared at the ark the other night at Montebello about sports and all this stuff. I haven't watched any of the sports since they started back. I watched one, 10 minutes of golf when they played their first tournament with no one in, watching. I was like, man, I can't, I can't. This is dead. It's like flatlined. This is just dead to me. And I, I can't even think about all the things that I used to think about with sports. I really can't. All I can think is about how are we going to start teaching our kids again? How are they going to go forward in school? How are we going to go forward as a community of faith in Jesus Christ, a local church? Where is this all going? And how to be in front of it in prayer and obedience to the Lord. It's just the, the time of distractions is over. The time of being, letting go of fear is over. It's a time of faith. It's a time of commitment and consecration. And if, things, if it's anything other than that, we're coming up short. Because Jesus says, I am the Lord. He's the King of kings and Lord of lords. And everything that's going around here is moving toward his return. He's the Lord. Stay the course. Having done all, stand.